0: The following article is called Anti-Masonry and Masonry, the Genesis of Protest, 1826-1827. to 1827. It's written by Ronald P. Formasano and Kathleen Smith-Kutlowski. It's from the American Quarterly, Volume 29, Number 2, Summer of 1977. Explanations of social movements should try to relate the actions and ideas of participants to social structure. They should explore what Rudolf Heberle calls situational causes. In cases of popular protest, social scientists try to discern why some men or women became active and how they may be distinguished from those who remained undemonstrative or hostile to protest. These are necessary goals of historical inquiry. Yet historians must first place a movement in its historical context. The search for structural causes is important, but explanatory models must not ignore the influence of immediate causes. The anti-Masonic protest of 1826-1827 to 1827 is a fine example of a social movement's origins being neglected, in turn distorting anti-Masonry's later phases as social movement and third party. The protest, the things protested, and the specific events nourishing the protest must be examined if any explanations of movement or party are to make sense. Most students of 19th century America have heard of William Morgan, the obscure stonemason of Batavia, Genesee County, New York, whom local Masons kidnapped to prevent him from publishing an expose of fraternal secrets. Yet modern historians deem the incident trivial, and some doubt that a kidnapping even occurred, much less a widespread conspiracy, murder, or cover-up as anti-Masons alleged. This kidnapping not only happened It came during a whole series of outrages, committed by Masons, and preceded a cover-up, which also transformed public attitudes. Though the kidnapping itself was a minor crime, to incipient anti-Masons, the cry of Morgan became symbolic of Masons holding themselves above the law both before and long after that event. When a protest against Masonry emerged months after Morgan's abduction, it resulted from Masons' recalcitrance and their apparent continued corruption of law and justice. Only by reconstructing the dialectic of anti Masonic protest and Masonic defiance can we begin to understand how protest against outrages turned into a passionate crusade to abolish a prestigious and ostensibly innocuous social fraternity. Historians have long recognized anti Masonry's significance. Though its presidential candidate in 1832 carried only Vermont, anti Masonry shaped major parties as they emerged in the 1830s and the Crusades' veterans played a key role in later evangelical and anti-slavery politics. Though they have avoided its systematic study, however, historians have delivered varying evaluations of anti-Masonry, ranging from views of it as a left-wing populism to a more common branding as a right-wing extremism. Generally, there has been a relation between the hostile assessments of anti-Masonry and neglect of its origins. Although Charles McCarthy's 1902 dissertation, The Anti-Masonic Party, was neutral, McCarthy ignored its beginnings as merely incidental. A few writers have taken the story seriously enough to devote several paragraphs or pages to it. But for the most part, attitudes toward anti-Masonry have reflected hostile Masonic and Jacksonian democratic bias. In the 1950s, when scholars became critical of all things populist, Influential works by Richard Hofstadter and David Davis portrayed anti-Masonry as irrational. As comparisons of anti-Masonry to witch hunting, the KKK, and McCarthyism flourished, interest in its origins became almost irrelevant. Anti-Masonic historiography has perpetuated a basic conceptual error. Anti-Masons appear as one more exotic in a long parade of bigots or extremists. They are always the aggressors. Masons are their scapegoats or passive victims. This simple moralism, incomplete as historical explanation, misrepresents those New York Masons who first provoked protest by their private vigilanteism. While seceding and renegade-most Masons have attracted some historical attention, these have perhaps obscured the actions of a more influential minority, the militants who sprang to the craft's defense. In its early stages, Anti-Masonic protest arose from men and women reacting to real events, forming beliefs supported by experience, and joining in conflict with tangible adversaries over legitimate issues. Initially, most protesters were neither fanatics nor opportunists, nor were they propelled by anti-conspiratorial impulse. Their hyperbolic rhetoric must be seen in relation to contemporary public rhetoric and, moreover, to Masonic excesses. Admittedly, there were some reckless early attacks on Masonry, but private Masonic vigilantism had initially stirred up fear and anger against the secret society. Whether Masons murdered Morgan or not, whether they and friendly local and state authorities perpetrated a cover-up, grounds existed permitting reasonable persons to believe that Masons were systematically violating the Republican norm of equality before the law and due process of justice. The protest thus justified itself with deep-seated Republican ideals, an ethos born of the American Revolution, and permeating political culture in the early 19th century. The protest was at once restorationist and populist, egalitarian and nostalgic. A closer examination of Masonry as secret society is necessary to illuminate the fraternity's role beyond the common sense proposition that secrecy invites fear and hostility. Although some social theorists maintain that secret societies possess an inherent potential for aggression, America's social fraternity did not resemble the 19th century esoteric brotherhoods which elsewhere fomented rebellion and revolution. But masonry did possess the secret society's emotional furniture, and what Marx called superstitious authoritarianism. It resembled the general antisocial type oriented toward exclusively benefiting its members, and it provided a protective incubator for unpopular ideas. Indeed, a recent study of Connecticut Freemasonry in the early national period described Masonry variously as a developing counterculture, a haven for symbolic dissent, and a subsystem of ideas and values at odds with both the Calvinist traditions of Connecticut and the newer egalitarianism of Jacksonian America. In 1826, however, Masonry's public standing was ambiguous, The craft possessed standard features of esoteric fraternalism, and depending on where it was, could be convivial, benevolent, mystical, patriotic, charitable, pietist, or even reformist. Its most potentially controversial features, however, were its secrecy, secularism, cosmopolitanism, elitism, and implicitly anti-egalitarian urge to provide a model of social order and sponsored mobility. Entrance into the fraternity was, as Richard D. Brown put it, ostentatiously exclusive. Its hierarchic organization, titles, pageantry, costumes, and icons suggested to outsiders an unrepublican longing for aristocracy. Its latitudinarian religious posture and its unprotestant idolatry prompted evangelical pietists to denounce Masonry as an infidel competitor for men's souls, a competing church, and, as an authoritarian belief system which interfered with freedom of individual conscience. Yet masonry did not uniformly attract increasing antagonism before or during the 1820s. That thesis rests on deductions from events after 1826, not before. Convention has it that the anti-Illuminati outburst of the 1790s was a precursor of counter-subversive movements which grew steadily thereafter into anti-masonry. Yet no one has shown systematically the location or degree of hostility to Masons before 1826. On the other hand, during Lafayette's triumphal tour of the United States in 1824 and 1825, Masons appeared in public ceremonies across the land. It might be argued that Masonry was growing in popularity, although the total number of active, affiliated, or inactive Masons in 1826 was probably a small proportion of adult white males, in the first quarter of the century Masonry grew. A popular Masonic orator exaggerated little when he claimed in 1824 that there never was a time since the creation of man so favorable as the present for Masons to associate. In 1800, Masonry claimed 11 Grand Lodges, 347 subordinate lodges, and 16,000 members nationwide. Two decades later, New York State alone counted almost 300 lodges with an estimated 15,000 members. By 1825, it had added another 150 lodges and 5,000 members. In short, the society experienced rapid, invigorating prosperity in the 1820s. What is masonry now? asked a Connecticut mason in 1825 and answered, It is powerful. It comprises men of rank, wealth, office, and talent, in power and out of power, and in almost every place where power is of importance so as to have the force of concert throughout the civilized world. The flushed Masonic times which encouraged such bombast ended after the Morgan incident, with New York's lodges falling to 82 by 1830. Yet the inference usually drawn from such data that Masonry wholly collapsed is misleading. Masonry's decline tells nothing of the zeal of those who stood and fought, In eastern New York, Masonry survived and diehards led by New York City and Albany Lodges waged political warfare against anti-Masonry. Even in the thoroughly infected western counties, stubborn remnants fought on for years. The Masons' capacity to fight back depended less on numbers than on the strategic positioning of many brothers in society and government. New York Masonry entered the battle in 1826-1827, as Jabez Hammond put it, in a most palmy state. Hammond guessed that a majority of officeholders owed allegiance to the craft, legislative, judicial, and executive officers from presidents and governors to deputy marshals and constables. Reverend Senator to the town meeting orator were, I religiously believe, a majority of them Freemasons. For Western New York, Hammond's inflated estimate has some substance. In Genesee County, for example, 16 townships claimed lodges by 1826 and Freemasonry was as much a part of rural life as it was a village phenomenon. Western New York had only recently emerged from the frontier, but Masonic lodges had grown up with early settlements, as quickly as schools and churches. The ravages of anti-Masonry, combined with neglect, have obliterated the pervasiveness of Masonry in New York State's hamlets and countrysides before 1826. In Genesee, Masonry enjoyed political and social status and overlapped with other elite institutions. From 1821 to 1827, half of all county officials, 12 of 24, were Masons. They constituted almost half the county's political leaders, and many affiliated with the upper status Episcopal Church. In 1822, even the press that became the original enemy of Masonry, David C. Miller's Batavia Republican Advocate, praised a Masonic speech in the craft itself. In Rochester, on July 31, 1826, The Knights Templar staged a gala installation at the village's most fashionable church, St. Luke's Episcopal. The Monroe Republican described the ceremonies with delight and found the keynote speech to show masonry in a manner calculated to do away with prejudice and recommend the institution to the favorable notice of the community. Similarly, in December 1825, in Batavia, Masonic officers were installed at St. James Episcopal while the church choir sang the Masonic Ode. Not long after, anti-Masons would scornfully deride such affairs, but later fulminations cannot be taken as indicators of earlier opinion. A popular anti-Masonic writer who allegedly first prepared to publish a book critical of Masonry early in 1826 claimed that public opinion was then decidedly on the side of the institution and stood ready to crush the wretch who should venture to speak of its follies. And a Mason began in 1828, Defense of Masonry, by noting, So quiet have been the opposers of masonry for many years past in this country that we hardly thought a defense of it would ever be required. At a minimum, then, attitudes toward masonry on the eve of Morgan were ambivalent. Whatever the underlying hostility, fear, or envy, explicit practical postures included tolerance, respect, and approval. On the other hand, masons themselves were sensitive to criticism and believed they had enemies. Masonic tradition offered examples of oppression suffered by Brethren in many lands. Masonic orders referred to prejudices against them. In dealing initially with the threat posed by Morgan, a few Masons acted as though the heavens were about to fall or the earth to be destroyed. Then they fought against the protesters with a sectarian zeal which historians hitherto have associated only with anti-Masonry. A clue to Masonic sectarianism may be found, too, in the way Masonic historians later wrote about the Morgan Excitement. In the 19th century, they continued the war against anti-Masonry by exposing the villainy of Morgan, Miller, and other renegades and traitors. Masonic defenders also labored to divest Morgan of his hero-martyr status and to confer that role on Masonic victims of persecution. However, in this century, the Masonic urge to wash all members clean of any wrongdoing and to pour vilification on enemies reached extremes. More recent writings are less polemical, though few depart from the line that Morgan's abduction was a small matter, that he went willingly, and that he wound up his life in some foreign land. Yet a few Masonic writers have confronted the Morgan story less contentiously, and their industry helps make possible a reconstruction of the controversial origins of anti-Masonry. The opening dramatics may seem to have proceeded from the imagination of a Dostoevsky, containing, as they did, a complicated cast of characters, no saints, many sinners, and perhaps more fools. In early summer 1826, Morgan, a pretentious, if impecunious stonemason, and David C. Miller, struggling publisher of the Batavia Republican Advocate, announced their plans to publish an exposé of masonry. Both certainly sought profit, and both may have wanted private revenge against certain masons or lodges. Morgan had affiliated with Batavia Lodge, but by 1826 had fallen out with most Genesee County masons. Miller was not then a mason, but the editors of a recently established rival newspaper, the People's Press, had all become masons in 1826. Thus, bad feelings existed, but exact connections between these and the exposé are not known. Although Morgan and Miller seem an unlikely pair to have threatened an established social institution which had endured earlier revelations, many masons of the area became inexplicably obsessed with them. A Masonic seceder who witnessed a meeting of Batavia masons planning to punish Morgan later claimed he never saw men so excited in my life. Committees were appointed to do this and that, and everything went forward in a kind of frenzy. They first tried to bluster the determined pair, then to frighten and finally to force them to give up their project. They harassed Morgan and Miller with prosecutions for petty debt and with tacit cooperation from the Masonic Sheriff of Genesee County, William R. Thompson, clapped Morgan in jail, searched his quarters and took some papers under pretended legal sanction. Local speculation mounted as strangers, thought to be masons from other areas, came and went through the villages of Western New York. A Masonic agent from Canada even apparently infiltrated the Morgan Miller group. In early September, the controversy climaxed as Masons mounted a series of bold vigilante actions. On September 8th, a gang organized by local Masons set out to destroy Miller's printing offices, but turned away on learning its defenders were equipped with firearms. Two nights later, Miller and his men squelched a midnight attempt to set fire to his offices. At dawn on September 11th, several masons arrested Morgan at his home on a charge of petty theft and took him to Canandauga. There, they imprisoned him for debt. The following night, a friendly mason paid Morgan's debt and coaxed him from his cell. Other men suddenly appeared, and with Morgan struggling and crying murder, wrestled him into a closed carriage and drove rapidly away. Many masons later maintained that this all formed part of a sham publicity stunt to sell books, but the fact remains that Morgan had disappeared forever. Meanwhile, in Batavia, an operation apparently to abduct Miller encountered more difficulty. A Leroy constable, backed by a club-carrying posse, arrested Miller on vague charges, kept him for several hours in a lodge room in a nearby hamlet, then took him to Leroy. Miller's friends followed, remonstrating, and at last gained his release. By mid-December, Morgan's illustrations of Freemasonry could be bought from Miller for a dollar per copy a mild revelation of Masonry's first three degrees. It was followed by more successful competitors, and its publication hardly affected the uproar it helped begin. Immediately after abduction, however, Miller broadcast news of it, and ad hoc citizens' committees formed throughout the country and traced the closed carriage over a 100 miles from Canandaigua West by Rochester to Lewiston, and finally to Morgan's last known incarceration at Fort Niagara. Rumors began to fly. Morgan now lived in Canada among the Indians, or in foreign lands, or, many believed, had been murdered and his body hidden. Intrigue and violence had filled the air before the abduction, strengthening beliefs in dark deeds of vengeance. More importantly, the complicity of many local law officers and the repeated use of the law for private purposes added to the shock of these outrages as the affair and aftermath came to be known. These events, sketched here, constituted only the main set of many incidents leading to calls for Masonry's abolition. In the weeks and months after Morgan's passage to the unknown, the kidnappers and their champions did more to create and sustain hostility to Masonry. The impact of the first outrages alone could not have created anti-Masonry. New and repeated outrages followed, and to protesters formed a logical and consistent whole with those just witnessed. The new outrages sprang from the legal actions resulting from masonry's altercations with Morgan and Miller. These generated a train of courtroom dramas which kept reenacting the kidnapping or allied events for some four and a half years. From October 1826 to mid 1831, in five counties—Genesee, Ontario, Niagara, Orleans, and Monroe—over twenty grand jury investigations were held and dozens of Masons indicted. At least eighteen separate trials took place some of which raised legal issues that reached the state Supreme Court. Hundreds of persons appeared as witnesses or watched these trials. When newspapers seemed reluctant to publicize the matter, news spread all the more quickly by word of mouth, as it usually did with greatest effect in that region in time. Then papers began to print verbatim reports or detailed summaries of the trials. Thus, for over four years, the public feasted on a flow of information, much of it providing new evidence of Masonic conflict with the law. The legal proceedings influenced contemporary writings and documents, which also supported the basic anti-Masonic view of the abduction and aftermath. Those who later denied that an abduction even took place ignored the first important Masonic account, Henry Brown's A Narrative of the Excitement in Western New York, published in Genesee County in 1829. The author, a loyal Mason, 40-year-old Batavia lawyer, bucktail Democrat, and an Episcopalian, loathed enthusiasm and compared anti-Masonry to the frenzies over the popish plot and Salem witchcraft. Although satirizing the protest, Brown described an abduction calling it unjustifiable, impolitic, and illegal. Unlike many Masonic brethren, he understood that the failure of the legal system to lessen anxiety and to deliver prompt justice made matters worse. Brown compiled a study, a brief for Masons, mainly from local sources before the trials ended, In 1832, a comprehensive work appeared which incorporated the results of the trials. William Leet Stone's Letters on Masonry and Anti-Masonry, usually regarded mistakenly as anti-Masonic, deserves a central place in any bibliography on these topics. An Adams Republican, historian, folklorist, and man of letters, Stone was the editor-publisher of the New York Commercial Advertiser. Unlike so many alienated Masons, he never renounced the order, though he did call for its dissolution. Stone was no evangelical or anti-Masonic polemicist. Throughout the mid-30s, he continued to write on controversial manias, aiming to deflate superstition and hysteria. He warned of the dangers of religious perfectionism, condemned the excesses of revivalism, and even lashed out against anti-Catholicism. The letters came then from a secularist who abhorred fanaticism and who particularly aimed to dampen Masonic ultraism. Stone read trial reports, legislative documents, private manuscripts, and solicited information, even from anti-Masonic leader Thurlow Weed, in letters and interviews. In late 1831, he told Weed that he wanted to write something that we can coax the Masons to read and that does not appear ex parte to the people. Stone's call for the fraternity's dissolution and uncompromising emphasis on the outrages, however, earned the hatred of militant Masons. Although he saw Morgan as no hero-martyr and Miller as no crusader, he discerned that Masons had conducted a conspiracy. The circle of conspirators embraced directly or indirectly hundreds of intelligent men, acting not from sudden impulse of anger, but after long consultation. Civil officers and prominent citizens of all kinds had participated including sheriffs, legislators, lawyers, doctors, even ministers. Stone blamed only a few extremists for murder, however, which he thought not intended. For our purposes, the value of Stone's letters lies in his analysis of the trials, which continued to furnish evidence of masonry stonewalling. Stone faulted anti-Masons, reprimanding them for seeing non-existence conspiracies and lecturing them against unreasonable criticism of the press. Yet their excesses appeared to be more a consequence of Masonic militants in denying justice. After months of inquiries and trials producing masses of evidence implicating Masons in crimes, no Masonic body had expelled or censored guilty Masons, and no lodge ever had its charter revoked. Stone's conclusions found support in the official reports of three different special counsels appointed by the state legislature to mollify protest and assist prosecution. All three counsels, Daniel Mosley, John C. Spencer, and Victory Birdseye originally evinced sympathy for Masons and hostility to political anti-Masonry, yet all three eventually accepted the outlines of the outrages as moderate anti-Masons later reported them. Though Mosley and Birdseye avoided naming Masonry, none of the Councils doubted that some group, operating secretly, had abducted Morgan, Mosley would not speak of societies or denominations of men, but of many individuals acting in concert, who took Morgan 120 miles from an Ontario jail to Fort Niagara, under circumstances of peculiar aggravation and cruelty, under duress of imprisonment. John Spencer, in the Frankist Report, observed that an institution, veiling itself in secrecy and mystery, and which counts among its numbers a large proportion of our fellow citizens, many of whom were among the most respectable, is directly implicated as having, by the very nature of its obligations, produced the outrage in question. Bowen Whiting, the Ontario district attorney assisting Birdseye and Mason, told the legislature that the abduction resulted from the confidence which members of the Masonic Society have felt in its power and influence, from a false estimate of the value of that institution, and from an opinion that they were bound to preserve it from a violation and injury. And then it's going to end part one of Anti-Masonry and Masonry, the Genesis of Protest. So join us again in the next podcast as we finish up this article. Hope you have a great day and you're enjoying the episodes. Thanks. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment.